0: Amen. We do thank God for his glory, for his presence. We thank God that um, he is glorified in us. He is glorified in our lives. And um, as we often say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we just that is our prayers, that God will um, just find such glory in the lives that we live because we are laying aside. Um, ourselves, we're taking up our cross and we are dying to ourselves and living um, for Jesus Christ. So that is our prayer is that He will be glorified in us and that when people see us, that they don't just see us, but that they would clearly see um, our Savior. So we are just um, grateful to be back in the house of the Lord. Um, we're grateful we're going to be completing today. I don't know what that is. We're going to be completing today our time. As we've addressed several different um, topics throughout the past month, we're going to complete our time this week and we're going to be back in the book of Acts. And so, as you know, I've tried to take several different topics this month and really look at things that um, particularly are sometimes struggles or even taboo for Christian uh, churches and things that we don't normally address. And I want to take some time today and address one of those things that every one of us is thinking about, has thought about, will think about. One of those things that every one of us is going to have to address at some point in our lives. And honestly, one of those things that we're all going to have to face at some point in our lives. And we're going to look at what it means and what it means to understand from a Christian perspective of what death is what we understand death to be, and how so many times we have done our best to escape this reality that inevitably, unless we're here for the return of Jesus Christ, every person in this room has an assigned date that we're going to be separated spirit, soul, and body, soul from body, and we're going to reside wherever we end up for all of eternity. And so what we want to do today is really look at what the scriptures have to say about death. And really, this is not to be so much of a discouraging or even just a sobering sermon together this week. But in actuality, I want this to end up being a very hopeful sermon. And I think the best way that that can happen is that we have a good grasp on what death means for the believer and how we can have peace with that. And so, you know, I don't want you to feel dejected at the end. I do want you to find hope in the truth of the scriptures and in the promises of God. So in order for us to do that, we must begin with the beginning. I think it is always appropriate when we're going to address such um, large topics that we start with the beginning. I think, you know, that means that we're going to go back to Genesis. So look with me, if you will. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter three. In verse 19, Genesis chapter three, verse 19, it says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to the dust you will return. Now, let's be honest about this, but let's not be morbid about it. The Bible is a book that as much as it is about life, it is a book that is also very much so about death. Now, I promise you, this sermon is not going to be a downer, but we do have to work through the weeds here on this. Now, why do I say that as much as the Bible is a book about life, that is it's a book about death? Well, you know that in order for us to fully understand life the beginning we must know that there is a conclusion to life if it, there was no conclusion then we would just be already living in eternal life but the fact that we just have life means that there is a beginning therefore there will be an end and you'll notice this that before Adam even fully understands what life is God tells him, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Before Adam even knows what death is, God pronounces that death will be the punishment for all sin. In that oft quoted verse for the wages of sin is death. That is epitomized for us in what happens with Adam and Eve when they sin against God. And we see that pronunciation here in our text and to the dust, you're going to return as a result of their separation from God. God says that the soul at some point will be separated from the body. Let me tell you this. The soul being separated from the body is as unnatural to us as sin is. Because the way that God intended was not that this soul would ever have to be separated from this body. But the minute that we invited sin into our flesh, this flesh became corrupted and marred with sin. And the only way we could be redeemed in order to spend eternity with Jesus was that the soul that he has given us would have to be snatched out of this sinful flesh. But remember The only reason that that happens is because sin happened. So when you think about how unnatural sin is, you must also think about that the natural state of death was not in God's original created order. Now, God sovereignly knew that it would happen. But God had created us to be free from sin and have eternal life at our our grips. Which is why when he cast them out of Eden, he says, I'm casting you out so that you will not eat from the tree of life and then live forever. So it is unnatural for us to do that. And, you know, as gloomy as you may already be feeling, I think we should all keep death in a healthy perspective. If you never think about it, then you're kind of just living your life with this unfounded sense of immortality where you put yourself in unnecessarily dangerous situations because you think you're invincible. You don't think anything's going to happen to you. You're not, all right? You're invincible, right? (laughs) Something will happen to you at some point in your life. There is some vehicle that will take you to eternity. But then again, if you think too much about death, Then you become paralyzed and you think every single thing that happens to you is a death sentence. And you think that little paper cut you got is going to turn to an infection and that's going to be your death. And then you just don't do anything. And what we often find is that most people don't really live in one extreme or the other. Most of us teeter totter from one extreme to the other. There are these times when we get good health reports, we feel good, we look good and we think, you know what, I've got another 80 years at least ahead of me. But then there are these times where sudden deaths happen around us or we get a dubious report back from the doctor and all of a sudden all we can think about is our mortality. Listen, I don't know how you could call yourself a human with this last year of COVID and the amount of deaths that we've seen and not Almost perpetually be thinking about death, and for so many of us, why so many people feel like they've been led into a greater depression is because we've been confounded by what's going to happen to me and what's going to take me out. I remember R.C. Sproul when he had found out, you know, he had emphysema for years. And he was nearing his death and he said, you know, I'm not really afraid of death. He says, people keep asking me that. He says, I'm not afraid of death. I know what happens after death. He says, I'm just scared of dying. I think that's all of us. If we have a foundation rooted in Christ, we know what happens after death. I think most of us are just afraid of what's going to actually take us out. And so what we want to do is prevent ourselves from Going back and forth in these different imbalances between only thinking about my mortality and never thinking about it and finding the balance in the truth of Scripture. And I think honestly is the reason why we probably teeter totter so much in between one extreme and the other is because I don't think any of us actually realizes the proximity of death at any time. I don't think any of us really knows how close death is until somebody close to us dies. And then we start to question everything. Listen, John Calvin wrote this. He said, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. But the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought that of our own perpetuity remains. So how can we still see that all the meaning of life without having to think about our deaths 24-7? I think it would be by understanding some pivotal things from the word of God. And so the first point of today's sermon is this. Death offers perspective in a world of sin. Death offers perspective in a world of sin. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9. And this is Paul writing, and he says this. He says, but but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. As Paul writes here, You see that he says that the source of our contentment as believers should be this. I have minimized my desire to be filled and fulfilled with the desires of this world because I know that there is a day coming when those things will not be able to have value to me any longer. I minimize what I think brings me fulfillment in this life, because all that I value the moment that I die, every one of those things loses its value to me. It only has value to those who remain. That's what he's saying. In death, there is no value of clothing. There is no value of money. There is no value of a claim. Nothing. The only thing that remains, whether you are alive or dead, is time. And it's frightening because we have learned in the Bible that there is this immediate consciousness that a person who dies apart from Jesus Christ has. And they realize, as we see with the rich young ruler who died, I didn't realize that I was wasting my time. Please let me go back. Let me warn all the people who remain that they are wasting their time as well, because there's this really interesting thing that I think we realize in the Bible about eternity is that we have no concept of what time is now. But the moment we get into eternity, everything becomes clear to us. Even those of us who are lost. What does that mean? When you die, you remain conscious, the soul remains. And that means that if you die as an unbeliever, you know that you have wasted your life. You immediately become aware of how you wasted it as well. You know, all of us at some point have heard some secular musicians music after they died. And there's like for any of us who's a Christian. There's almost this uneasiness as you hear them rap about the things that are so important to them in life. Because you realize this person is dead. Recently, DMX, you know, died a few months ago and there was an album that he was working on. that was re- released after his death. And I was reading some of the reviews on it recently because I just wanted to see what people had to say about it. And I think one of the best reviews I saw was from a guy who wrote about it and he said, you know, it's, it's a well-crafted album. I will not, will not deny that. He says, but there was something that felt a little wrong hearing the guest rappers on there rap about all their success and everything that they had seen and done, knowing that the man they were rapping with is dead. Why is that? Because they're rapping about all the things and all the values of their lives, but the man that they had recorded those songs with is in the ground. And even this critic knew that I bet those things aren't as valuable to him as it is to them. Because as some people say, death is the great equalizer. Would that perspective about this album exist if he were alive? Of course not. It'll be just another rapper rapping about this life and this life success. But I think this that even the world knows that in death there is this reappropriating of values. Now I always talk about the parable of the rich man. But it really is some great truth in it. And I want to go there. I want to look at it. And we're really going to look in depth about what's happening here. We're going to compare that with our Corinthians text. So look with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke twelve thirteen. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So look at this. And we're going to look at both our texts for perspective here. This man comes to Jesus and says that he wants Jesus in his authority to command that this brother's that this brother bring his share in his inheritance with him, that he give him his inheritance. It's kind of an our request, right, to bring to Jesus. You're expecting Jesus to rule on this. And so Jesus sees this, he hears this, and he warns him that his life should not be about the desire to gain and get money and land and have all of these possessions. But he doesn't just leave it there. He gives him a reasoning why. Here he says in a parable that there that this man is trying to get this, but he wants him to understand the fact that we are always in such close proximity to death that the most important investment of your life cannot be in yourself. Now, this runs completely contradictory to the message from the world that we get. But he says that the one who lays up treasures now is not rich toward God. You may be rich in this world. You may be rich among the people that admire you. But as in terms of God, you are not rich towards God. In fact, you are quite poor in the eyes of God. He warns him, he says that if your chief desire in this world is to gain and build, gain and build, be an influencer, gain and build, have no variety, gain and build, have a lot of followers and friends, gain and build. He says the one critical, eternal mistake that you have made is that your soul is required this day. Do you think if that man knew the proximity of death that he would have wasted his time building and gaining? No. It offers us perspective in the world. The perspective here is that my natural life, who I am, how I dress, where I live, how much I make will vanish the moment that I die. There isn't a single accolade that we have that will survive with us into eternity. Not a single one. Yet to stave off our great fear, we will do everything to believe that the most important thing that we have is in the current life that we have. And the great fear, I do believe, isn't that people are unaware of what happens after death. I believe they know what happens and they suppress the truth because Romans says we know the truth and we suppress the truth. Mankind knows what is true and is afraid of that truth and thereby rejects that truth. So what are we to learn? I don't know if you know who Tim Keller is but he's a wonderful preacher out of Redeemer, new york and he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last year and you know they almost never catch pancreatic cancer early but they actually caught his early which never happens but he wrote about the depths of his struggle to accept the proximity of death now i'll also tell you this he wrote this he wrote an article for the atlantic and as he was writing this he said that the book that he had written on death Was sitting on his coffee table and he dare not open it. He says, and I would almost have to rewrite that book because I wrote that book not thinking about my own death. I wrote that book thinking about others deaths. But this is what he had to say. But as death, the last enemy became real to my heart. I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection have become life gripping truths. Or be discarded as useless. It is easy for us to have a great perspective on death as long as we don't think death is close to us. Most of what we feel about God, most of what we know about God is rooted in our feelings of perpetuity. We think life just continues for us. I mean, to a degree, it's easy for me to get up here almost every week and talk about sacrificing your life for the faith. Be willing to die for the faith. But I'm saying that as an American pastor, With all the religious freedoms in the world who can stand in a pulpit and not worry about infidels coming in and shutting me down or killing me for the faith. So I can talk with that with much more openness than perhaps the people in Libya can do. Perhaps than the people even in India can do. Because for them, that is a reality. It is the same way that we offer comfort to people who find out they get a cancer diagnosis. Just trust in God. Just believe God. But do those words ring true if it's my cancer diagnosis? Tim Keller said the hope of the resurrection was a theoretical idea until he's facing his own death and he realizes this has to be true. Because it now is not just this concept, but this might actually be reality for me. What you know and believe about God cannot just come alive when you think you're about to die. It must be our foundation now. Much of what we think is our faith is called to the forefront in the face of death. And we would hope that in the face of death that our faith would come alive. When Lazarus died, one of the most important events, acts of faith is found in Martha. Some people I've heard give Martha a little grief because of the way that she approaches and questions and and tells Jesus, if you had been here, then my brother wouldn't have died. But she makes one of the greatest statements in the whole Bible. And we probably overlooked it. When Jesus arrives after her brother dies, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The first thing we know is that she does not question the ability of Jesus. Maybe his intention, maybe. But she doesn't question if you had been present. I know my brother wouldn't have died. She knows of the ability of Jesus. But then she says this. And y'all, it really is amazing. And as I was working on this, I never fully grasped this until I saw this in the presence of, you know, thinking about and talking about death. Not only does she understand theology, But she had an even greater grasp of Jesus than even the disciples at this time. When Jesus says, "You will see your brother again," what does she say? Yes, in the resurrection. Okay, that didn't hit you like I thought it would. The reality is, is that in the face of death, her default position was, "But there is a resurrection." In the face of grief, but there is a resurrection. In the face of loss, but I know there's a resurrection. Let me tell you why this is brilliant, because this is not a part of Jewish or Greco-Roman faith to believe in a resurrection. It is foreign to them to believe in a resurrection. Jesus has not even died. And she says, but there will be a resurrection. My hope in life and in death is that Jesus is who he is and that there will be a resurrection. How can she have this perspective before Jesus was raised from the dead? And here we are. Jesus having been risen and we don't even have that perspective. She says, yes, I know. I see my brother again. That ain't even a question because I know there's a resurrection coming. It's amazing. Now, perhaps she understood this in more broad and generic terms, but her hope in Christ and in her brother was that one day he would be raised. But then I like what Jesus does. Jesus then brings this broad idea of the resurrection right in her face. And I bet he changed her theology right in that moment. Because she says, I know there will be a resurrection. Jesus says, no, there's not going to be a resurrection. I am the resurrection. You're looking at the resurrection. Your hope is not just that there will be a resurrection, but you're looking at them. You're looking at the reason why your brother's going to be raised from the dead. That brings us to our second point. The power of a risen savior, the power of a risen savior. If Jesus be raised from the dead, then that means not only will we be raised, which we will be, but that also must mean that the hope of eternity is real, is tangible and is real because Jesus has defeated death. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at chapter 15 this time. We're going to look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. But not just that, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are are of all people most to be pitied but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, one of the problems is that when it comes to our faith, we don't really prioritize the revelation of death until we face it. But if we are Christians, quite honestly, death should consume our thoughts. Now, I don't mean my death. I'm not consumed with my death, but I think the death that was intended for us. The death of Jesus, as the Bible commands, we should be bearing in our hearts continually. I should always be thinking that the death that Jesus had should have been mine. That because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, I have escaped what should have been my separation from God. What should have been my cross has bypassed me and has been placed on the back of Jesus. He died in our place, but he was also raised. The power of Christ being risen is our hope. And as painful as loss is for us, and it is. Every time a believer dies, we know that they in a moment have awoken with Jesus. Yes, in death, our grief should become envy very quickly. Because the reality is, is that they have not been passed from life to death, but they have been passed from death to life with him. And as miraculous as our salvation is, the gift of our salvation is overwhelming. And that it that it is that we will be spending an eternity in joy and bliss and total peace and harmony with God. A joy that we have yet to feel a peace that we have yet to know. I don't know how many of you all are familiar with catechisms beyond Pastor Mike back there, but one of the questions in the Westminster New City and Hindenburg catechism is this. What is thy only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul and in life and death to God and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yeah. Yeah that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready, henceforth, to live unto him. My hope in death must also be what is my hope in life, that Jesus is who he is And that if he was risen, then there is the assurance of eternal life. How do we know that he is surely risen? Because we have the testimonies of these men who saw Jesus as he had been risen. They knew what they had seen, and that was enough for them. And because they knew that Christ had been raised, that death was no longer a threat to how they live, but rather they saw death as the necessary vehicle for them to be reunited permanently with the Savior that they were preaching about, where the full revelation of who he is will be revealed to us. Tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. All of life as I currently know it is fragmented by flesh and sin. And this is why Even when we sit and try to do our best to conceptualize eternity, it is an impossibility. Because right now, what I see is a very dim picture of reality. This life is not the reality, but rather that life is. In eternity, we will fully know the depths of God and all of his nature and his essence. And to think that the only thing that stands between me and God is this feeble, crumbling body only motivates me more to escape it. When asked about his feelings about coming to the end of his life. John Quincy Adams had this to say in his 80th year. A person asked him. And how is John Quincy Adams doing today? And this was his response. Thank you. John Quincy Adams is quite well, sir, quite well indeed. I thank you. But the house in which he lives at present is becoming dilapidated. In fact, it is tottering upon its foundations. Time and the seasons have nearly destroyed it. His roof is pretty well worn out. His walls are pretty much shattered. And it trembles now with every wind. The old tenement is becoming almost uninhabitable. And I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it soon. But he himself, sir, is quite well. And with this, the old statesman leaning heavily upon his cane moved away slowly down the street. If we live long enough, this will be our ever approaching reality. We will all have to move out of these tents. This will be our constant perspective if we come to terms with this now. But not just that we are moving out, but that we have to be sure that there is indeed a home awaiting us whose builder and maker is God. If I believe what I know about Jesus is true, then I must know that there is an eternity Waiting on me. I know. You're tired of talking about this at this point, but what we believe about what happens after we die will most certainly shape the way that we live. And so that, believe, that brings us to the final point for today. Believers will live again. Believers will live again. Revelation 21 and 1. This is John writing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be. With them as their God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The life which awaits us in eternity pales our current life dramatically by comparison. This is the promise of God for those of us who believe. I believe that the sufferings of my present life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. This life that we think is life is actually death. We are not passing from life to death. We will pass from death to life. All of the grief loss pain, suffering, sin that we experience in this wicked, broken world that epitomizes death will be removed for all of eternity. Think about it. Everything that is fractured in our world and in our lives is a result of original sin. Every disease, every fight, every divorce, every imprisonment is because of sin. But God has guaranteed that all of the residue of sin will be removed, eradicated, ended for us for all of eternity. We will live in one continuous, non-ending moment of eternal joy in the presence of God. I cannot even... Being, imagine being free from every vile thought that I have, every vile word that I speak, every vile deed that I do, but that is indeed coming. When asked about what he was looking forward most to eternity, John MacArthur said that I'm most looking forward to being free from sin. He says, I'm tired of sin. People, sin in the life of all of mankind is the greatest reason for death to happen to every single one of us. But the absence of that sin is the greatest reason for us to reside with God for all of eternity. For all of us that believe that day is coming, we will be freed from this current prison that now clothes us. Look, I've learned. Not to think that some of us, because of our age or our health condition, are closer to eternity than others. None of us, in fact, knows when that is. But every single one of us that believes should be waiting with bated breath to see our blessed Savior. As familiar as we may feel that we've become with death in this last year and as sobering as it has felt, I will say with all honesty that the most encouraged I have been in this past year was this past Tuesday when I attended the the funeral of a believer. I attended two funerals this week, one Tuesday, one Wednesday, and I was encouraged by the one I attended on Tuesday. Now, this was an 81 year old woman who had died from a second battle with cancer and she wasn't the most popular person She wasn't famous. The funeral wasn't really packed. But every single person that got up and spoke about this woman said that no matter where she went, she shared the gospel. They even mentioned that while on vacation, a random man walked into the elevator and she said, well, it's nice to meet you. Do you know where you're going if you die tonight? This woman had an incessant habit of sharing the gospel, and it had left an indelible mark on every single person that she had come up. She had come with. And this woman, in preparing for her death, knowing that it was coming. Had specifically requested the pastor at the end of his sermon to share the gospel. It was the most encouraged I have been all year because this woman lived the way that every single one of us should live to the glory of God. And the testimony of her life can be surmised like this. She loved Jesus. She shared the gospel and she couldn't wait to meet Jesus. Testimony after testimony spoke about that. Listen, people, your death will only have as much meaning as the life that you live. No, you aren't just living to live now, but we are all living to live again. I'm going to close with this. I've mentioned Joni Erickson Tada before, and if you've never heard of her, you should look her up. Joni Erickson Tada. If you just type Joni, J O N I, and then Tada, you'll find her easily. But she's a quadriplegic. And she wrote this about an experience she had. And I really hope this has an impact on you. I'm going to read this, we're going to close, and we're going to pray. The speaker closed his message by asking everyone in the large room to push their chairs away from the table and if they were able to kneel on the carpeted floor for prayer. Now I watched as everyone in the room, maybe five or six hundred people, hiked up their cuffs and got down on their knees. I couldn't stop the tears. I wasn't crying out of pity or because I felt awkward or different tears were streaming because I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people on bended knees before the Lord for me it was a picture of heaven what's my point about kneeling she said it's just that I wish I could do it it's impossible now for me to bow in worship. Sitting there, watching those people bow, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, to dance, to kick, and do aerobics. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, Sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is drop on grateful and glorified bended knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And she ended with this. The day is drawing near when I'll be able to kneel again. People, this is our hope in life. This is our hope in death. Say, none of us are whole as we are now, we are broken corrupted vessels marred and stained by sin. But as this quadriplegic woman wrote, there is coming a day when she'll be whole. For every single one of us, even though we don't even realize that we are as broken as we are, where is our hope in life and death that we are not our own, but belong body and soul life and death to God and our Savior Jesus Christ and that there's a day coming where these fragmented broken pieces will be made whole let's pray Lord we thank you for the truth Lord we thank you for the reality that Death is the necessary vehicle for us to face, God, in order for us to be with you again. Lord God, we do not grieve, we do not live as those who have no hope, but we have hope in the only thing for which anybody can hope in, and that is in you. God, we find our truth, we find our life, we find our hope to be that jesus was raised from the dead and that we will not just be raised from the dead but that we will also reside with him for all eternity god in a world that is consumed about their own perpetuity lord help us remember that there is an afterlife coming for us and that our perspective should be that we are bearing in our hearts the death of jesus christ knowing that the death of that should have been ours was his. God, restore our joy, restore our hope, restore our peace, that if Jesus is who he said he is, that not only do we live, but we will live again. That is our hope. That is our hope in life. That is our hope in death, that we will reside with you. God, give us his peace. If there's anyone in this room who does not know you, who does not know That there is a life coming. God, please, let this be the day that you sovereignly reveal yourself. God, any of us who have been struggling in this last year with the reality of death, God, that you will bring us comfort and joy and peace. Knowing that those of us who live, though we die, we will live again. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.